You are listening to the Marketing Rescue Podcast, the weekly show where we take a look at some epic marketing failures, along with some pretty amazing brand rescues and comebacks. And now your hosts, Nico and Chad. Chad. Yes. Do you fly much? I do. Do you have a lot of miles? I've accrued a lot of miles. I have maybe 15,000 right now. 15,000. Right. I spend them as fast as I accrue them, basically. Nice. Nice. How about you? I got a few, but same thing. I've spent the most on family vacations and stuff, but this, this is just all silly talk what we're doing right now. True. Let's uh, talk about Steve Rothstein. All right. Steve Rothstein is uh, the feature actor in our show today. <laughs> he didn't even know it. <laughs> well, I think he knows it. <laughs> he knows it now, right? He does. Yeah. So Steve Rothstein accumulated over 40 million miles over 25 years. Jeez. Yep. He had 1,000 flights to New York City, 500 to San Francisco, 500 to Los Angeles, 500 to London, 120 to Tokyo, 80 flights to Paris, 80 flights to Sydney, and then, of course, 50 flights to Hong Kong over 25 years. Wow. So he's a real homebody, you know, (laughs) (laughs) probably a a very heavy Amazon Prime user, doesn't like to go to the store, never goes out. Yeah. That's that's an accumulative of 10,000 flights altogether. Wow. Yep. That is insane. So how does it get to this point? Getting to today's episode and unpack it. Let's do it. So the year is 1978, and American Airlines is hit really hard by this thing called the Airline Deregulation Act of, you guessed it, 1978. And they posted a $76 million loss in 1980. Yeah, and I think that's close to a quarter billion dollars in today's money. Jeez. Big chunk of change. Yeah, that, (laughs) that really, really puts it into perspective how bad they were hurting at this point. So- American Airlines president Robert Crandall wants to, in his words, cut American down to the bone. So they need cash, but in the 80s, interest rates were insanely high. We're talking like 18%, 21% for a mortgage, like just basic consumer lending. The rates were at record highs. So they start to really get creative and start thinking about, okay, how can we find other ways to generate this cash? Is there something more kind of inventive that we can do? And so they decide that they're going to sell their wealthiest customers the ultimate travel perk, as they called it, which was basically an unlimited first-class ticket for life. Hmm. Yeah. Like, like really think about that for a second. Unlimited first-class for life for you, and you can also buy a companion pass as well. So they think this is like you know, a great way to generate buzz, utilize their existing customer base to aid their marketing efforts and generate cash and get the extra cash flow that they need when they're in this cash crunch. Yeah. So this one-time cost of the air pass is $250,000 per person. And that's roughly about $1.2 million in today's money, considering that back then flying was 50% more expensive because there was less planes in the air and so on. And $150,000 for your companion add-on. And it's got an ad here. This companion add-on is for anybody. This is not a spouse or a family member. This is just somebody sitting next to you in first class. And you can you can basically pick who that is. It's no problem. So you can choose anytime. Anytime. Change it anytime. Up to you. 
then they also had, they tried to sell this to older flyers at a discounted price, keeping in consideration their life expectancy because this is a lifetime deal. And then the unlimited pass were bought by a lot of known wealthy individuals, including the Baseball Hall of Famer, Willie Mays, American Cup skier, Dennis Connor, and then lastly, Mark Cuban. Wow. Yep. And he was actually quoted to say that this was one of the best investments that he's ever made. I would think so. Yep. So did this work? Did that solve their cash flow problem? The short answer is no. And this is partly because they only sold a few dozen of them and it was really expensive at the time. And then the long answer is kind of complicated. Well, and the reason that it's so complicated is because of this guy, Steve Rothstein. So Steve, he essentially cost them millions per year with over 10,000 lifetime flights. He actually became known as the man who flew too much. So probably, you know, he's the most infamous person that bought the pass because of what ended up happening later. And the reason he was even able to buy the pass to begin with was because he was a stockbroker for Bear Stearns Bank in Chicago. He was already traveling a lot and was on the radar of American Airlines. And in 1979, he had actually become the second highest grossing stockbroker at Bear Stearns. Wow. So he's doing really well. And of course, you know, he's traveling around to visit clients. And that's how he was able to afford the pass by the time he bought it in 1987. So American Airlines approaches him and says that based on the amount in quotes, based on the amount I traveled, the unlimited air pass would be a great purchase. It was like a bond. Instead of paying me dividends in cash, they were paying dividends in air travel. They needed cash and they could pay me in miles. Steve's wife, Nancy, of 37 years, said the thought of him going to LA from Chicago for a day or Tokyo from Chicago overnight or London overnight for one night was not unheard of. He is actually a pretty good guy. A lot of the research that we found is that he actually helped a lot of people. He once met a desperate mother that her children's babysitter didn't make it on time, and he took her home with one of his companion passes. Wow. He also took a priest to Rome to meet the Pope. <laughs> and we found a really interesting quote from him during this time where he said, I thought these random acts of kindness were exactly the sort of things we're meant to do as people, which is pretty cool. Yeah, it's amazing. There's another interesting traveler during this time uh, that made the headlines, and his name is Jacques Vroom. Vroom, vroom. Like vroom, vroom, exactly. <laughs> Almost yeah. like Zoom, Zoom, the ad it's, campaign. Exactly. <laughs> Very appropriate last name. Yeah. So Jacques was a direct marketing catalog consultant in Texas, and just during this time, that was the, the industry to be in. A quote from him, I've never bought anything over $400,000 in my life. But I took out a loan of 12% over five years, and I did this because it gave me a competitive advantage for life. Yeah, I would say so. I think just about anybody that was able to tap into that would have a competitive advantage. Well, he made sure that he's tapping into it because he flew an average of 2 million miles a year for a total of 20 years. Jeez. I mean, and really, when you think about it, like the amount of value that you get out of that, right? Like it's only a five-year loan. And granted, it's 12%, you know, so the thing isn't cheap, but I mean, the lifetime value of this is amazing. Yep. And he did it for business predominantly, but he also, there was a few articles we found that he took his son yeah. that was very into football to the East Coast. And then he popped over to London and Paris for a quick lunch with his friend. 
He took his daughter that had a middle school project for South American culture to Buenos Aires for a rodeo and then flew back the very next day. Wow, that's amazing. And like Rothstein, Vroom essentially trusted the sanctity of the contract he'd signed with American Airlines. So in his words, they used the word unlimited and lifetime, and then the took it all away. So Vroom allegedly booked flights for strangers. Allegedly. Allegedly, and accepted payments for tickets on certain occasions. And this is really where things start to kind of unravel a little bit in the story. His lawyers say that the seat-selling accusation is really mostly moot because Vroom's contract didn't actually prohibit it. When the passes actually started up, there was no limitations and no rules. So American didn't actually even ban the practice of selling your seats until three years after Vroom even bought his pass. But the main thing at this point is that American Airlines are losing money hand over fist and they're trying a way to get out of the deal. Yeah. And what did American Airlines do to solve the problem? Like any sensible American company would do, they sue. (laughs) Yes. And before you can sue, you need evidence. And this is where Bridget Cade enters the whole story. And Bridget started in the reservations department in 1990. And then in 2007, she was promoted to the Elite Revenue Integrity Team. Uh, It's quite the name. Quite the title. Yes, yeah. And so she was charged with rooting out any passengers or travel agents or really anybody suspected of trying to cheat the airline in some way, shape, or form. So, of course, her first big job was to investigate the unlimited air pass users. So she was really playing detective mode, and she started, of course, with those who flew the most. So the first thing that she did was she pulled flight records for both Rostan and Room, and then calculated that each of them was costing the airline over a million dollars per year. Wow. A quote from Rothstein during this time, I wish I never bought the thing because he was in a massive legal battle with a really big airline. Another interesting factoid here is that he met the president of American Airlines on a Concorde flight back to New York City, a supersonic flight, Robert Crandall. And in his office in New York City, there was a letter from the president, and it read, you can count on us to honor the deal far into the future. Yeah, I guess that didn't turn out quite as expected, did it? No, it did not. In 1990, the airline raised the price of the unlimited pass with companion to $600,000, in 93, they bumped it up to just over a million dollars. And in 94, they stopped selling the unlimited pass altogether. 13 years later, and while the lawsuit is still going on. Then they somehow, for some reason, decide, you know what? Let's just try this one more time. So in 2004, American decides to offer the unlimited air pass one last time in the Neiman Marcus Christmas catalog of all places. In a catalog, yep. (laughs) Yes, very widespread audience. And they decide to offer it at a price point of $3 million plus an optional companion pass for $2 million more. And surprisingly, they sold zero. Now, I mean, this most probably was because it was either too expensive or because people didn't really trust the brand anymore. I mean, why would you go and and buy this unlimited pass from a company that's actively suing people who have purchased the unlimited pass, right? That's using the product. Right, yeah. So pretty risky investment, especially considering the price point. 
So, you know, they sell zero and, and it kind of fails at that point. So that's in 2004. Then in 2007, Bridget starts digging in. And in 2008, Rothstein gets stripped of his unlimited pass. So here's the story from Rothstein in his words. We went to the airport. I went into the ticket counter. I checked in my luggage for London. I walked to the gate after going through security. And just as I was walking on the plane, they handed me a letter terminating the unlimited air pass. Why did they let me go to the gate? Why didn't they tell me up front, which would have been the nice thing to do? Yeah, it actually turns out that a letter had been drafted to notify Steve that they were concerned about his behavior using the pass, but they decided not to send it, and partly because they didn't want the bad press. Mm, yeah, see, and, and and that's where, you know, from a marketing perspective, this thing really starts to get interesting is that they were really trying to avoid bad press. Yep, yeah, right? exactly. So they knew what it would mean to terminate one of their supreme airline frequent flyers members. So they decided to terminate him without any warning at the airport. Who Steve tried to be as a person. Yep. You know, he really tried to do things very charitably with, with what he was doing. So even though American Airlines didn't necessarily like it and they tried to position it as potentially against the rules, he was really trying to help people. So Steve's daughter, Christine, actually tells a story of how Steve met this young man who, in the story, she changed his name to Emil because they're no longer in contact with him. But, you know, she talks about how he was a, a young boy who had escaped the Bosnian genocide. And as a teenager, Steve meets him. He's essentially driving a luggage cart at O'Hare. Mm -hmm. And then makes friends with Steve and becomes a close friend of, of the family. Steve takes him under his wing for years and really kind of makes him a part of the family. He took him under American Airlines wings. <laughs> and his own <laughs> wings. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and so then this whole thing really comes full circle in that the day that Steve's pass gets revoked, he's actually helping Emil. Emil is his co-passenger that day. He needed to get to Sarajevo. Of course, he doesn't have the cash. And so the pass is revoked. Emil never makes it to his destination. And the family loses contact with him after that. Wow. So here's actually some verbiage from the lawsuit, the actual clause that they tried to use that was in the contract for the pass to get out of the pass. And it says, 12, fraudulent usage. If American determines that an unlimited air pass has been fraudulently used, American reserves the right to revoke the air pass and all privileges associated with it. The holder will thereupon forfeit all rights to the air pass without refund and will return the air pass card and this agreement shall terminate. So that's how they tried to get out of it was through this fraudulent usage claim. So at this point, both Rothstein and Vroom files lawsuits against American Airlines for wrongfully terminating their contracts. But unfortunately, they're completely outmatched against the airlines, you know, the massive legal war chest that they have. And subsequently, in 2011, American Airlines files Chapter 11 bankruptcy, which then taking their entire claim and putting it in legal limbo. And an interesting fact here, till today, Mark Cuban's pass is still valid. Yeah. He's still using it. Nice. <laughs> so, Chad. Yeah. Let's take it full circle back here. What have we yes. learned here? 
Yeah. I mean, I think what's really amazing about this story is that the whole thing really revolves around greed. You know, it's greed from the airlines to fill this short-term need with something they know, you know, it might hurt them in the future. You know, there's there's just not a lot of, I think, really clear thinking that that goes around it, but they're trying to avoid a few things. They're trying to avoid the high interest rates, right, and saving money. But then when you think about the overall cost of this entire program, I mean, the administration, just the bookings alone for 10,000 flights, right? A million dollars worth of flight costs per year for Steve. And then, of course, that's not even considering all the, the legal stuff that happens later. You know, just the the amortized value of that. Really, they didn't end up saving any money. In fact, they ended up costing themselves a, a lot more in the long run because of this greed of trying to you know, squeeze their, their top customers for as, as much as they possibly could. And then I think the other thing is interesting is that even though, as we've talked about, you know, Steve and, and Jacques were, by all accounts, seemed to be great guys, that there was a certain level of, you know, they really pushed the limits of what they could possibly do with the passes. Well, there's always that one guy at the buffet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there is, right? And they definitely- so Why wouldn't it be? It's fair game, right? Of, of course. Wrong with it. Yeah. Why aren't you going to go back for seconds yeah. and thirds and, you know, double fudge dessert and <laughs> anything else you can, you know, stack on your plate? Of course. So, so yeah, I mean, I think greed is, is the big thing. And then, and then also there's, I think, a component of fear. You know, they really let this fear drive them to making- kind of some bad decisions, both logistically and as it relates to marketing. I mean, the part of the story where they, you know, revoke his pass without even trying to work with him on it, you know, that's totally from this position of fear of, of what's going to happen in the press, but it ended up then creating significantly worse of a press storm versus if they would have just done the right thing and just worked with him on it. Absolutely. And I also think the third component here is lack of planning. A lot of the decisions that they made initially when they rolled it out and then later on how they managed it felt very knee-jerk. Yeah. And I'm sure that somebody somewhere did some financial planning, but at some point they must have realized, hang on a minute, we're losing a lot of money here. But at that point, they still kept on offering the pass. And they kept on saying that with this pass, you can donate all your miles to whoever you <laughs> want to donate it to. That is just very, very, very poor planning. And to your point... Ernie Thurmond, who is one of the executives at American who managed the contracts, negotiated them, and basically handled all of that in relation to the passes, he had tried on multiple occasions to talk the American Airlines executives out of the program, but they really thought that they were going to make hundreds of millions of dollars off of the program and just wouldn't really listen to the voice of reason through this whole process. So I think there's a part of it that also is a little bit based on ego and the fact that if you don't have the right processes in place to check those egos, it's very easy for charismatic or highly influential leaders to kind of lead an organization down a path that might not be the best path because of that lack of process, that lack of protections to make sure that we're really pressure testing Absolutely. Uh, Everything that we do. Yeah. And don't assume anything in marketing. Do your research. Don't assume, oh, don't worry. Nobody will take advantage of this. Or, oh, that is the worst case scenario, but nobody's going to rack up 20 million miles, you know, (laughs) over a lifetime. Yeah. You know, and then lastly, as it relates to process is really having some sort of a 
process in place where you can learn from your failures. Like we've seen by doing the research into this, they kept on offering the same thing after they failed multiple times. At right. some point, you need to, you need some sort of a gate and some sort of a process in place to say this was a bad decision. How can we recoup from it, and what can we do moving forward? Versus taking the same old thing and implementing it the whole every single time afterwards. Yeah, and I, th I think that also plays back to the fear component is that when you get into this position where you've already invested a lot into something, yeah. and both in terms of time and finances, then what you tend to do when things go wrong is feel like we've made this massive investment, we need to double down. We've, we've got to keep going so that we can kind of pull this back around. And I think part of that is just, you know, this this feeling or or kind of habit that we have just as people to essentially be afraid of failure. And by not being afraid of failure and, and saying, hey, okay, like this thing didn't work out the first time, that's okay. We can chalk that up, learn the mistakes that we've made and move on. You know, if they would have done that and thought more positively about how to move forward from this, things could have turned out very differently. And then of course, the other component is that there was a real lack of understanding of their customers. So like you talked about in terms of modeling it out, you know, they didn't really understand that just because their existing customers were flying at a certain rate, that they were limited by the fact that they had to pay for every single flight, right? So if, if you don't have that limitation, that limiting factor, you're probably going to use that a little bit more. It's just like the buffet analogy. Yep. So it's really important to understand your customers, to understand what's important to them and to ask your customers, maybe even talk to them and find out how would they use it? How can we partner to make this process as effective as possible and think about this in the way that is going to be the best for everybody involved? And then, of course, a lack of understanding their customers as it relates to doing the wrong thing by their customers and revoking the pass you know, to try to avoid the, the bad lawsuits and bad press, knowing that in reality, that's probably what's going to spark the, the lawsuits and the bad press. Yeah. And thinking back of it, they could have really coupled that with a ton of really good media exposure. Looking at Steve, they could have put him, put him in the positive face of the company. They could Absolutely. have followed him. They could have used it as like user-generated content. They could have actually made this into a really positive thing versus being fearful and, and acting on, on the way that they did. So these four things, greed, fear, or lack of planning, and lack of understanding your customers are reoccurring themes that we'll see throughout every episode moving forward because it's something that, that keeps on popping back. Yep, and it can really affect your marketing in a variety of different ways. And that's episode one. Thanks for listening to the Marketing Rescue Podcast and be sure to come back next week because we'll be talking about whether or not you can buy your way to the top. And we're going to be discussing that within the context of Michael Bloomberg and the current political campaign in which he's infusing massive amounts of dollars into the campaign. Talk to you next week. You've been listening to the Marketing Rescue Podcast. This show is hosted by Nico Katsia and Chad Childress, the co-founders of KPI Agency, a marketing rescue agency. Be sure to visit marketingrescuepodcast.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, contact the hosts, and discover fantastic bonus content.